Welcome to Only Girl on the Job Site. I'm Renee Beery, a luxury interior designer and construction expert. Educated at the New York School of Interior Design and employed by AD Top 100 firms, I have created a niche expertise in managing large-scale construction projects from renovations to new builds over the past three decades. Today, I'm on a mission to instill confidence in designers through this podcast and my online course, The Interior Designer's Guide to Construction Management. Whether you are new to construction management or a seasoned designer like me, I am all about transparency and tactical advice for fellow designers. On this podcast, I share actionable steps, practical tips, real-life examples, and behind-the-scenes tricks that I use while managing construction projects. Not only will they keep them on schedule and on budget, but will give you the confidence to know that these projects will end successfully, protecting your profit as well as leading to a pipeline full of incredible referrals. If you've been searching for support and advice on construction management to grow your skills and confidence so you can avoid the mistakes that I've made in the past, then you're in the right place. Before we get started, I want to thank each of you for being a part of this community. Your listens, subscribes, and reviews are what allows me to make this show great week after week. I've got lots of plans for growing this podcast, and that's enabled by you. Make sure to follow the podcast so that you get notifications of new episodes so you don't miss a thing. If you enjoy this episode, spread the word. Leave a review and tell your interior design friends how much they can learn from this show. Today, we're going to talk about toxic clients. I've spoken to a couple of designers lately about this. I want to take a deeper dive on this topic, what to look for and what to do. Let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. So like I just mentioned, toxic clients exist. I've spoken to a couple of designers recently about it. Perhaps you've had your own experience, and I know I've had mine. So I wanted to go through this very important topic carefully and sort of break down what you should be looking for, ways you can improve the relationship, red flags to be looking for, and how to sever ties if that's ultimately the decision you make. So the important thing to hear is what I just said, your decision to make. And I want to really drive that point home for each of you because it can be really nerve-wracking to be standing inside someone else's living room, for instance, and stand your ground. But ultimately, it is your decision to make. Now, I can hear several of you thinking, well, but there's money involved, Renee. And yes, of course, that has to be factored in, and we will get into that. But the reality is, you ultimately get to make the decision if you continue forward with a client that has become toxic or a project that has become toxic. And I'm hoping that that will empower you in and of itself. It is truly your decision to make, and we'll go through the steps you can take to sever ties with this client if that is the decision in the end. So let's first start by talking about some of the toxic client behaviors. And you may never have experienced some of these already, but it's good to have them in mind so that you can see them coming and maybe cut them off at the pass before they become a real issue. But the first client behavior you need to keep an eye out for is when a client is ghosting you. 
So I remember I had a project where the client would vanish for a week or two weeks and then pop back up and say, hey, how's it going? Well, how's it going? Um, You have been ghosting me and there have been decisions that need to be made. Oh, so sorry. And then, you know, fill in the blank with the lame excuse. I was traveling. I wasn't feeling well. My child was sick. It was the holidays. Lots of seemingly good excuses, but ultimately excuses. So the key in that situation is proactive communication. So if you have set regular check-in meetings and deadlines for the decisions you need, those are things that you can lean on. So for instance, I had sent emails to this one client and she didn't get back to me. I forwarded the emails to her again and I said, hey, listen, you know, because I have not heard from you, X, Y, and Z now has happened. And by the way, X, Y, and Z were all further delays in the project. So you need to make sure that you are constantly communicating with clients, asking them proactively, are you heading out of town? Do you have any interruptions that you foresee in the month of February that will impact the progress we are expecting to make on your project. Now, of course, there are legitimate reasons that clients will ghost to. If their child becomes sick or if there's an emergency or an accident or a death in the family, all things nobody can predict, but you must have the conversations in advance of if this, then what, right? So, hey, I understand emergencies come up. By the way, they come up for us as well. Create that dialogue in the beginning so that you can be a part of the healing process. So for instance, if a client has a child that's sick and God forbid needs to be hospitalized or has an aging parent that needs immediate attention and you all have established, hey, just send me a quick text. Doesn't matter the time of day, right? Emergencies can happen. And you want to know about it because then you can step in and be proactive on the job site, alerting the entire team. Hey, this is what's going on. I don't believe I'll have contact with the client for at least three days. What's happening? What can we do to mitigate the delays and then move on? But a client ghosting is not an emergency situation. A client ghosting can happen for a variety of reasons, none of which are positive. And so you need to be in constant communication with your client so that you can determine if this ghosting is something larger than them just being distracted and ultimately out of touch, thinking it won't impact the project. Another client behavior that is toxic is when a client goes rogue, and particularly with your vendors. So I have had situations in the past where a client started directly talking to my suppliers. Now, fortunately, I have solid relationships with my vendors. They all communicated immediately with me to let me know what was going on. So I could go straight to my client and put an end to that. But the reality is you need to explain in the beginning what your protocols are with your client. Now, I am not suggesting you say, you may never contact the vendor directly. That implies there may be some nefarious business between you and a vendor, which of course there isn't. But the reality is communication gets jumbled when your client is calling the vendor about things that you don't know about, that the vendor doesn't understand what to do, puts the vendor in a very uncomfortable position because, frankly, they have ongoing work with you. They don't want to jeopardize their relationship with your firm by answering your client's questions or possibly making changes to selections directly with the client. 
So you need to have a protocol in place. So establishing those protocols in your contract that all vendor communications and purchases must go through you, make them understand why. It's not for secrecy. It's not for extra kickbacks or deals, or at least it better not be. The reality is it's for clear communication so no mistakes get made. It allows a project to stay coherent and a timeline to be met. And I don't know any client that wants a timeline to get extended or extra expenses added on or wasting your time because they know the value of your time based on your fees. So in this case, when my client reached out to my vendor, she immediately emailed me and said, hey, heads up, Renee, I just heard from Mrs. Jones. I didn't say anything, but I think you need to reach out to her. And I did. I let her know that the vendor called me, first of all. I think she was a little surprised that the vendor had called me. So therefore, I just established that the vendor and I have a strong relationship and that the vendor is essentially an extension of my firm as a team member. The client made some awkward, oh, well, I was in the area, so I stopped in and I was really wondering if the other bathtub would be better. You're right, Renee, I should have called you. Fine. It was a very awkward moment. That was a sort of apology. The message was received and it never happened again. Now, I did go back and we'll talk about this in a little bit about tightening up my contract to make sure that language was crystal clear. So if I had needed to go to that next level, it would have been there to support me. Luckily, in that situation, the one phone call from me was enough and we moved forward. Another client behavior that is really toxic is when they are refusing or questioning your bills. So look, the reality is clients want to understand what they're paying for. I don't blame them. I too like to know what I'm paying for in my day-to-day life. But when a client gets to a point where they're balking at every charge or questioning every line item, that's when you need to pull back and set clear expectations by having a detailed discussion with the client. Ideally, this should happen in the very beginning with your contract. It should provide detailed information about how you will be invoicing, when you will be invoicing, and what is included in those fees. Transparency is key. We all know the stereotypes that our industry is up against. We honestly all know the stereotypes contractors are up against. And so when we are on those construction projects, we can be lumped into that guilty by association concept. So the more transparent you are, the more clear your contract is, and the more detailed your invoices are explaining each charge, the easier and more streamlined this process will be. Your clients will be less inclined to either refuse to pay and or nitpick your charges. There's nothing more uh, demeaning or makes you feel insecure when someone questions your fees and you aren't hiding anything, right? You immediately start, oh my gosh, what did I do wrong? Honestly, you've done nothing wrong if your contract is clear about it. This may be an issue that the client is showing you that they are becoming or have become toxic for you. Now, the last client behavior I want to talk about that I've had personal experience with is verbal aggression. Now, I have a red line for that. Hard stop, no, I don't allow it. That doesn't mean I haven't heard it. I have been faced with clients who are downright rude, 
And we've talked in the past on this podcast about how contractors can be demeaning and or rude. But when it becomes the client doing this behavior, it's not easy. Like I said, you're in someone's personal home and you're trying to stand your ground respectfully, right? Because it's important to your self-worth and it's important to lay the groundworks as to the behavior you will and will not, more importantly, allow. So what have I done in the past? This has happened to me, both by contractors, which we won't talk in this episode about because I have talked about it in the past, but I have had clients be demeaning and rude. I did have one client become verbally aggressive, and I'll be honest, it was very intimidating because remember, we are usually the only girl on the job site. And so it can be intimidating when a man in particular is being verbally aggressive. So what did I do? In this case, I was not alone in the room. And while I was tempted to be embarrassed because other people saw this behavior, I actually used the guys in the room that were on my team that we've been working together for, at that point, months. I used them as my emotional support. I did stand my ground. I directly addressed the behavior and I did it professionally. And by professionally, I mean, I didn't let my emotions take over. I stopped him in the moment and I asked for him to rephrase what he was saying to me because I felt that his tone had taken a turn. Luckily, it worked. Now, it it actually may have been because there were other guys in the room, and I'm not even sure he was even aware of their presence. We were having such a, frankly, tense conversation. But I then set up a meeting to discuss his concerns with the super on the project. We sat down as a group. I think it was a couple days later. We expressed what was going on, and he had basically cooled off by then. He didn't officially apologize. He did in a roundabout way, and I decided it was enough for that incident. I also decided in that minute that there would be no second chance. And fortunately for myself and frankly, his project, there was no second incident and we successfully completed his project. So the reason I wanted to list through some of those behaviors is you may not think that all of those behaviors could become toxic or frankly are toxic. But the reality is those types of behaviors can disrupt more than just the project. They may impact your mental health. They may impact the team dynamics. They may undermine your self-esteem, your value. You may start questioning what you have done wrong in that moment or in the surrounding moments or the months before or the months after. And it can be really not just challenging, it can be extremely draining. And I say this from experience. So, okay, we have heard some toxic behaviors that we should be looking out for. And honestly, you may experience other toxic behavior. That definition is one that you create. Because if you find something toxic or inappropriate, then it is. Whether I just mentioned it or whether your best friend agrees with you or not, you are allowed to make the decisions of who you work for. And I will say that in every episode, if I need to, to empower you to have that decision-making in hand. But given the list we just went through, 
we need to talk about some strategies for resolution while you're going to stay on this project. So the first is to set clear boundaries in the beginning. It's, it's all about being firm, but fair. So for instance, I had an annoying client who would call me or text me or email me at all hours of the day and night over the weekend. It was ridiculous. And frankly, I started losing track of the emails because he would send one about one topic and then another about another. It was just his stream of consciousness and it was overwhelming, frankly. So I set a boundary. No calls, no texts after 5 p.m. or on weekends. I said, if there's something urgent, you can send me an email, but I will not be checking those emails after 5 p.m. or over the weekend. So he knew, in writing, by the way, what the expectations were, that he could get all those thoughts out, but he would not be hearing back from me until official business hours. Now, let me tell you, it took him a bit of time, but he did, within, I think, two days, learn to respect this, and our working relationship actually improved. So it's important that setting boundaries isn't just good for you. It's good for clients and projects, too. Everyone works better when they know what to expect. And by the way, I now set those boundaries at the very beginning of projects and have never had a problem since. So another strategy for resolution is working on your communication. Open, honest communication is key. So another issue that can come up is when a client's vision just starts to go way off course and significantly from what we had agreed upon in the beginning. This one client, honestly, it was causing tension and confusion. The contractors were hearing things during the day when I wasn't at the site. They were wondering if this was a change in the scope or whether this was just some random thought. So they would call me, I would call the client. It was just all over the place. So I quickly scheduled a sit-down meeting and we realigned the goals. So during the meeting, I actively listened, right? I wanted to hear her concerns, why the changes were coming up, what changes there were, and then her expectations about the changes. Did she expect us to completely change course? And the reality was, no, she was getting insecure. She was losing faith in her original vision. And so we went back, we reviewed the project scope of works, the limitations, frankly, that every scope of work has, and frankly, why one or two of these random thoughts, frankly, wouldn't even work. So we also discussed that changes aren't necessarily a bad thing, but how they affect the timeline and the budget were important for her to understand. Now, this was not an easy conversation, but it was necessary to put an end to all of this chaos that was coming into the project and to get the project back on track. So sometimes just creating a space for an open dialogue can clear up misunderstandings and assuade some insecurities that your client may be feeling at some point during the project. And then I've already mentioned contract. A solid contract is your best friend in this business. There was a time, I will fully admit, that I had a lousy contract. It didn't cover me at all. And many of the issues I just discussed happened when I had this lousy contract. So we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but I learned from these and I now have a very clearly outlined 
contract that reviews the scope of work. It reviews the process of scope changes. It includes my fee structure. It includes timing. It includes deliverables. It really is comprehensive. It also includes how I can get out of a project and tons of other stuff. So I really suggest that you look over your contract, speak to an attorney, ideally that has some construction knowledge so that you are more comfortable standing your ground, knowing your rights and how to move forward to protect them. The bottom line is it's essential to have a comprehensive contract that covers as many eventualities as possible. Because if you leave something to assumption, that leaves you vulnerable. Another resolution solution I have used a component of is if you need to seek out mediation. So there are going to be times where an an impartial third party needs to resolve a dispute. This can either be an attorney, it can be a mediator. And in my case, I use the contractor as the third party. I had a project where the client and I couldn't agree on the project scope. It was written out. He felt there was things missing. The wife had agreed to the scope of work and it was getting murky. As a he said, she said, I needed a third party to get involved because we were at an impasse. So while a contractor is not impartial, they are one degree away, but still have the knowledge needed to have this level of a discussion. So we sat down, the three of us, we communicated our viewpoints. He understood each of our perspectives and he was able to find a middle ground. Honestly, it was a game changer and something that I truly appreciated because I didn't want this project to go south. I just felt we were locking horns and there wasn't a way out without this contractor's assistance. So we completely resolved the conflict. We moved forward. The scope of work did get massaged slightly. So the best way to describe it is we both gave a little and we both got a little. But this can be a very valuable tool when direct communication doesn't seem to resolve the issue, and particularly using the contractor when you want to stay on this project. Which leads me to when you don't want to stay on the project and what red flags you really should be looking for. So it is important to understand and recognize when things have gotten too bad. Right. And there are red flags to watch for, like continuous disrespect, like I had mentioned, constant scope creep. The client just won't stop changing the scope or failure to pay, not just questioning it, but refusing to. So I keep a mental checklist, frankly. If a client consistently disrespects my time or questions my expertise without reason or basis, or, you know, a or obviously exhibits unethical behavior, those are clear signs to me that that relationship and project may not be salvageable. So the hardest thing to do is to trust your instincts. I have said it before, I will say it again, your gut is right. If a client relationship consistently leaves you feeling undervalued or stressed, it is time to seriously reconsider staying with the project. 
So I mentioned, you know, we've got contracts. I want you to have a lawyer that you can lean on as needed because before ending a client relationship, it's important to understand what your legal and financial implications will be. So you should hopefully have a termination clause and penalties written into your contract. You need to review them. I do not look at my contract each and every time. I admit that is a flaw of mine. I am doing better, but I know I could be even better at looking at it and making sure it's really covering my ass when I need it to. Because the minute their signature is on it and the language doesn't cover what you want it to cover when the you-know-what has hit the fan, it's too late. And by the way, if you're unsure, if you've covered all the bases, that's what you need to consult your lawyer for. They can offer advice on how to minimize potential legal and financial repercussions. So for instance, I had to terminate a contract because they refused to pay. I consulted my lawyer first before I approached the client, and he helped me to understand what my rights were and how to proceed to minimize financial loss. His advice was gold. I did actually get that payment eventually, and I still walked away because I knew it was not worth the time and energy because, by the way, I had to pay my lawyer for that time. It wasn't worth going back to that client. The relationship was too damaged. The other thing you need to consider if you're going to walk away is your professional reputation. So like I've mentioned before, your reputation is your currency in this industry, right? Most of our work will be through referrals. So when you are ending a client relationship, it is vital to do it professionally. Communicating your decision clearly and respectfully, but also fulfilling any outstanding obligations That's outlined in your contract. And that may mean refunding a client. So, this is about finding the balance between standing up for yourself and maintaining professionalism. So, when I did have to walk away from one project, I ensured that all of my communications were polite and professional. In this scenario, I was billing hourly still. So, I did not technically owe the client any money, but we ended the second week of the month. And honestly, I didn't even bill them. It just wasn't worth the mental anguish that this client was inflicting to even try to get, uh, I think it was like a week and a half worth of time. I considered the loss a gift to my sanity, which we'll talk about in a minute. So the reality is I have had my fair share of difficult client relationships. In the 24 years I've had my own business, I have only had to fire two clients. Now, I consider that lucky. I've heard designers tell stories of many more difficult situations they had to walk away from. But please don't think that I haven't had other difficult situations, even beyond the ones I described in this episode. But there are red lines that you need to draw and be comfortable knowing what you will do if that red line is crossed. It is not always easy But prioritizing your mental health and well-being, frankly, yours and the team's, is always paramount to any size project. So I have been on calls with designers who detail out a lot of these red flags. And then they say, well, but. And it typically falls along the lines of, it's a really big project. I could make a lot of money. 
I think I can turn it around. I think the client will stop doing fill-in-the-blank behavior. But in truth, the designer doesn't know any of those scenarios will come true because we can't predict the future. You can only make decisions based on today and previous experiences with this client. And so if you think, I'm going to white knuckle through this project because at the end of the project, there's a pot of gold waiting for me and photos I think I can get published in a magazine, and that may be six, eight, ten months out, well, I can tell you from experience, if there's already bad behavior going on and the project has that much more time left, you may not survive. They may end up firing you. Now, that actually may be a gift in the end, but I would much rather see each and every one of you stand your ground and make the decision for yourself. The other thing to weigh in is at what cost will you white knuckle through that job? At what cost to your mental health? At what cost to your future business? Because you will be working on a job where you are full of frustration, self-doubt, and stress which will close you off to future work. It just will. You will not be in a mindset to be bringing in new project, even if you're actively marketing it. And side note, you have no idea what that client is going to be telling other friends, family, colleagues about you and the project. Now, you can't control that. You certainly can't foretell it. But I'm going to tell you, if you're having a toxic relationship with a client, they're not likely to be glowing in their remarks about your work. So what future work did you miss out on because of this toxic relationship that you think you can white knuckle through? So as I just said, I've had other situations and I've only fired clients twice. It was a gut reaction each time. I trusted my gut and I resolved the ones I felt I could and I got out of the ones that I knew I couldn't. But if you do end up walking away from a project and terminating your contract, I want you to take time to decompress and reflect. You will have a range of emotions from frustration to self-doubt and hopefully some relief. Now, on all of the scenarios I was involved with, not just the ones I walked away with, I did take time to step back and evaluate what happened and why. This reflection was crucial, honestly, for my personal growth and my future client interactions, way beyond just a really great contract. I learned to see signs in advance. I learned how to mitigate in the moment, to try to not let things blow out of proportion. I also honed my skills at interviewing clients to avoid the nightmares that I had had to deal with in the past. Because the reality is every difficult client relationship teaches us something. Like I said, whether it's a need for better communication or better contracts or a more stringent client screening, there is always that takeaway. And the greatest loss to your business beyond losing a project would be to not self-reflect learn the lessons, and apply them to future projects because you would be allowing this same cycle to continue in future projects, which I don't want for any of you. So my hope with this episode is to empower you 
to see the red flags, to understand what toxic behaviors clients can bring, can present, to hopefully see them coming, cut them off at the past before they become unsustainable, but also what to do and to empower you to do what's right for you, even if that means severing ties with a client. But again, I want to leave with 24 years in business. I have only walked away from two projects. Yes, I have had tense moments, but they were one-offs or they were short-lived. And each year they become fewer and fewer because I self-reflected. I learned the lessons. I tightened up what I needed to tighten up and I stood stronger in my space knowing I had the strength and the control to walk away if I needed to. So as always, this one actually may bring up more questions than answers. You are always welcome to email me. I am happy to talk offline about problems you're having. And I also encourage you to go back and listen to the previous two episodes talking about building a community of support. It is very challenging to make some of these decisions alone. And I know so many of us work alone or in very small offices, and you can feel like you're on an island and that it's only happening to you. And I hope with this episode, you realize you are not alone by any stretch of the word, frankly, but that I am here and there are teams of designers out there who not only don't want you to make the mistakes they've made, but are there to support you if you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do. So episode 157 is all about designers supporting designers. And right on its heels is 158, where it is building a support network with your industry partners and your vendors. They are critical to not only my success, but to my enjoyment of my work. So I can't thank you enough for your time today. I know this was a heavy topic, but I really wanted to discuss it so that you had the tools you need if the situation comes up. And I look forward to our next time together. Thank you for listening. And I hope you heard something that you can apply to a project today. If you're ready to increase your construction projects in your business, check out the details on my signature course, The Interior Designer's Guide to Construction Management. It's a six-part digital course that will save you a three-year learning curve, get you profitable, bring in an income and lifestyle that makes sense for you by learning the top strategies, what works and what doesn't, building your confidence so you're no longer paddling to stay afloat or worse, learning how to manage construction on a client's project. Through the course, I'm handing over 30 years of top strategies and advice. Head to my website, devinyedesign.com, for more details on the Interior Designer's Guide to Construction Management and become educated and empowered for your next construction project.